Well, good morning again. Uh, it's my pleasure today to give our sermon. Pastor Luke's been away at General Assembly, as he said earlier, and a little bit later after the service, we'll have the opportunity to hear what all went on down there, what mischief they've been up to, although I've heard that it, everything went great, as we expect. Uh, and it's a wonderful place if you ever have a chance to go there. I've never been, but I've talked to a lot of people who've had, and it's neat to see how the church uh, works at that level. Uh, so, uh, to give him the week off, uh, uh, I have the privilege of, of speaking to you today. And uh, I've chosen as a text, uh, actually it's the, it's the verses that we used for our assurance of God's grace, which just fits perfectly into the feeling that I have, and I hope that maybe you do from time to time, that uh, God's peace or any peace at all sometimes seems elusive. So we're going to talk about how it might be possible in the context of our relationship with God, with God to actually be at peace without looking at what's going on around you. Uh, I'll read the scripture in just a second, but uh, would you pray with me first before we go to God's word together? Let's pray. God, we do crave peace and not the kind of peace that is fleeting, that the world produces, but a peace that is eternal and that can come only from you. And so, Father, as you open up your scriptures today, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears that hear and hearts that understand how a peace is possible, a peace that is from you, a peace that will affect all that we do and make us into the people you want us to be. All these things, Father, we pray in your son's name. Amen. Well, here's the scripture. This comes from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. How effective do you want to be? You might say in what, or what's effective mean, or define your terms, but let's leave it at that. How effective do you want to be in the things that you've been called to do, the things that you're facing right there today? where you sit. Today's message is for all of us, as we talk about effectiveness, but especially for those who understand that they have been saved 
by the blood of Christ. Paul cares, you see, about our effectiveness and wants us to be able to rise up to the things that we've been called to do, to take the action that God has placed in our path that we need to take. And so ultimately, Paul is often talking about action and work and how do you do what you've got to do. Paul's known, however, as really the interpreter of the Christian faith in a way to many people, certainly to the Gentiles, that was his initial ministry. And so often as we read books like his letter to the Romans, we think of it as a theological treatise or a legal document or something that explains, you know, what does it mean to be a believer? What does it mean to be a Christian? But usually if you read far enough in Paul's letter, and I think it's true with our text today, if you go on in the book of Romans, usually what he's worried about is us getting up off of our chairs and getting on with it. And he, treat, he deals with the difficult theology, difficult sometimes, in presenting the gospel to us because he thinks that in order to be effective, we need to understand what it means to be a Christian, to have been saved. And then he usually concludes with things like, knowing what you know, knowing that you've been saved, justified, what's holding you back? And that's where we get to talk about effectiveness. God's not judging our effectiveness so that we can get into heaven because we're more effective. But having gotten us into heaven by the spilling of his blood, he wants us to now turn and get on with it, get on with life. An obstacle that I face, and maybe you too, as I think about being effective in what God has called me to do. I'm a lawyer, it might be in, some, in my work, it might be in my role as a father or a husband or a citizen or a, a human being. One of the obstacles that I face is my inability to feel peaceful. Another way of saying that is that the uh, trials of life get in the way of doing what God wants us to do. Circumstances that we face, I mean, it's not hard to understand because uh, if you think about what you face and how sometimes it takes your mind off of what you're supposed to be doing, and it might be anything. It might be a personal thing, an illness, or a, uh, a loved one that's in trouble, or um, a, a failure, or a setback in a job, or might your education path. Financial difficulties are always up there at the top of things that challenge us, doesn't matter what age you are. Any of those things are obstacles that prevent us from being who God wants us to be. And so Paul comes to us today, and in, I'm going to suggest two different ways, tells us to get on with it, to understand um, not that we're in trouble, but that in fact, we can be at peace. We cannot worry about the obstacles. It won't mean that they go away, as we know, but it will mean that as I'm, for example, called to be a father, the obstacles in my life should not take me away from that or anything that we're all called to do. Um, as you'll see in the bulletin, I suggest two different ways of looking that, at this in this particular text. Verses 1 through 5, I call it the war is over. Um, and I'll explain that in just a second. And then in the last verses, 6 through 11, the greatness of God's love. In other words, the greatness of his love should inspire us to not worry quite so much about the things that we human beings have a tendency to worry about. Let's look first at the war is over. This is verse one, verses one through five. Paul, Paul in this uh, chapter is going to begin the answer to a question that's one of the great profound questions of all of existence, I think. 
Now, he's already established, if you go back and look at verses, uh, chapters 1 through 4, he's established that we've been justified. He's explained what that means. We understand that Jesus went to the cross and what that has meant that in terms of our relationship with God, we are, we are beyond the point of paying our debt because Jesus paid it for us. We've been justified. And beginning in chapter 5 and leading, I would say, all the way up to um, about chapter 8, Paul's going to deal with the question that comes from the back of the crowd. When you read the book of Romans, you can always anticipate and understand the questions that come from the back of the crowd. They're not written in the text, but you can find them. And the one that he's going to deal with today and over the next couple of chapters, if we were to read them, is, okay, now that I've been justified and I've experienced the grace of God coming to me, can that ever be taken away? Can I ever lose that? Can I ever, should I fear that even though God loves me, even though God has made things right between the two of us now, can that ever change? And as anybody who's read chapter eight knows, we're gonna lead up to a wonderful passage that's kind of the climax of his answer, where he says, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's the answer. No. But in our first 11 verses today, Paul's going to begin the process of answering the question, can anything separate me from God? Okay. Now, today, in the first part of this text, he's going to suggest three different straw dogs, three different possible reasons God might separate himself from us. And then he answers each of the questions. And the three things are God's wrath. Can God's wrath separate us from God? God's holiness. Can God's perfection or his righteousness, his holiness, can that separate me from God? And then finally, and the one that's always most practical, although maybe not the most profound and difficult, but the third one is the trials of life. Can, can my circumstances, can I be so bad in my walk with God that God would turn his back on me? And then that's, and he's going to talk about that. So let's look at those one at a time. In this first section, the war is over. God's wrath. What's that mean? Well, this is, this is, there's a debate stylistically about how God's feelings towards us are portrayed, but it is certainly true that God hates sin. God cannot tolerate sin. God gets angry with sin. We have the story all the way up to Jesus throwing the moneylenders out of the temple expressing a righteous anger over things that are not good. They're not good for his people. God can be angry. This is a delicate topic because I don't want to scare anyone away from a relationship with God. God loves you and he loves me and his desire is that we would be saved if we are his children. But his wrath is certainly in there if we read the text and Paul deals with it. And he answers the question, can God's wrath ever separate me from the love that I've experienced. Chapter five, verse one, therefore we read, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace, okay? That's inconsistent with an angry God. Verses nine and 10, which is a little bit outside of this first text, addresses it as well and I wanna mention it. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. What we're basically saying here is that Spiritually speaking, we've been at war with God. And it's not a fight that he started. It's a fight that we started. 
when we rebelled. That's a war, and it, it legitimately can lead to God's anger at us. But the war has been over, and, the, and we have peace with God. That's what Paul is saying. Now, this is not a war that was fought valiantly by us and won. It's a war that God determined to be over. It was God's decision to end our war. Now, and we say in the scripture, we have peace with God. The war's over. We don't have to worry about his anger separating us from his love. Note that I said peace with God, not the peace of God. That's the problem we're addressing here because although theologically speaking, positionally between me and you and our God, the war's over. We have peace. It's not necessarily the peace of God because you see our will gets in the way. We don't always live even as saved people knowing that we've been saved. We live as if we're still at war. And that's what Paul's saying. I'm telling you the war's over. Get on with it so you can be more effective. Now, another possible separation that we might face grows out of a similar concept, but not the same thing. It's God's holiness. God hates sin, yes. Why does he hate sin? It's because he's holy, he's perfect. He cannot be in the same place with sin, with something that is so despicable. And so we might logically say, well, okay, he's not angry anymore, but maybe because he's holy, I can't walk into the same presence with him. I can't, I can't be around him. He sort of looks at me and says, I'm sorry, I'm not angry at you, get on with life, but you know what? I don't wanna be anywhere near you. He could say that to you and he could say that to me. But in the scripture, we learned this, verse two, through him, Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith. We have access to our God. This is what grows out of many things scripturally, but one of them that comes to my mind is the story of how after Jesus's crucifixion, the curtain that was in the temple split, symbolically explaining to the people that they now had access, the Holy of Holies, the back part of the temple that only the high priest could go into at any time has now been opened. That symbolically says to you and to me that we don't need an earthly high priest anymore. That's what the whole business in Genesis is and in Hebrews about Jesus being a high priest of the order of Melchizedek. He's not Aaronic. He's not part of the human priest order that was required within the church to offer prayers up to God. No, you and I can pray to God. You and I can talk to God. We have, as the scripture says here, access. And that's the answer to the question, will God's holiness keep me away from him? Will God ever be so holy or will I ever in my humanity be so sinful that God once having saved me, having sent Jesus to the cross for me, would say, you know what, Dave, you've stepped over the line and I'm gonna turn my back on you. And what he's saying here is not because of what I've done, and that's the key, but because what Jesus did, I now have access and that goes on forever. God tolerates us. That's my word. He really embraces us. He embraces and loves us. An illustration that I thought of, and I, I hesitate to use it because if, if you haven't been through this, I don't want to make anybody sick. But if you're a parent and you're around a sick child, um, you, at least in my experience, it's not the same thing as being around anyone else who's sick. When it's a sick child, you don't look at all the messiness or that. It's just your child. And 
It's like God who looks at us. There's a lot of messiness. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I don't want to, well, I won't even go into a description of what messiness means in the context of a sick child. But, but that's, there's a lot of that in us. And God looks at us and he still um, sort of chooses to overlook that. And in his grace, he saves us. So his, his holiness will not separate us from his love. Finally, in this first section, we look at the trials of life. Ugh. This is a hard one because if you're in the middle of one right now or if you will be tomorrow or if you were yesterday, and I guarantee you that one of those is true, um, it's very easy to feel unloved, to feel even abandoned, abandoned by God. Here's what he says in an answer to that. Verse 3. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Uh, rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We rejoice in our sufferings. Doesn't mean we don't pray that they be ended. Jesus himself from the cross prayed that the cup be taken away from him. But once we conclude that what we're facing is of God's will, it becomes perfect. If you're facing some great difficulty that you have nothing to do with, perhaps it's an illness or a condition of some sort, or another person who really, through no fault of your own, is treating you in a bad way, if you're convinced that God has allowed this into your life, would you change it? If I tell you it's an example of God's perfect will for your life, why? Because he wants to grow you or challenge you or convince you more of the need to depend upon him or just because he wants to use you and the circumstance that you face to bring glory to himself as the condition is resolved by him and not by you. If any of those things are true, would you change it? I'm not answering that because often I would say yes, I would. But, but should I change it? It's perfect, and I don't think I should want to change it. It's interesting that the, the Greek meaning, I'm going to do something dangerous here, Pastor Luke, I'm going to talk about Greek. The Greek meaning of the, words, uh, the word for suffering, which I think is thlipsis, uh, includes concepts that are helpful for me when I think about being effective. Um, thlipsis means affliction or pressure or burden or tribulation or trouble, and it comes from the word that means to crowd. So as you consider your personal circumstances, and particularly when they're difficult, think about how it feels to be in the middle of a big crowd with all sorts of people walking around you, and how hard it is to enjoy you know, seeing the outside. Maybe you're in the middle of something that you wanna see, and there's crowds all around you. That's the way you feel when you face personal difficult circumstances. And it's hard to be effective in times like that, and that's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying in the midst of that kind of a thing, God gives you the ability to feel peaceful. He doesn't necessarily solve the problem for you immediately, but he lets you feel peaceful. Another illustration that's biblical that shows this point, I think, is that when we talk about Jesus ministering to the disciples in the midst of storms, several, there are several stories where there are storms that are out in a boat. Sometimes Jesus prays or waves his hand or looks at it and the storms go away. Sometimes Jesus just gets into the boat with you and falls asleep. That's happened. And that's what we're talking about here when we say glory in our sufferings because something's going on in them. God's at work. 
Many people feel abandoned by God. Many people maybe in this room at different times feel abandoned by God. And that's why Paul wants you to understand the breadth, the depth of God's love so that you will understand that God will not, God will not abandon you. What God has done can't be undone and he saved you by sending his son to the cross. That's why it's so important, by the way, to understand that our salvation comes from God. Because if what gives me ultimately the peace that I'm describing, something that makes me more effective, if it had anything to do with things that I did, I would be greatly depressed. Because I would worry that because I'm not perfect, because I'm not righteous completely, that, that it would be something that I could lose. But that's not what it is. God saved you and he saves me. And Philippians 1.6 says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Well, how does that help us deal with our trials? How does that help you and me be more effective? God's will is perfect. If we face a trial, it will, pervert, it will produce perseverance, character, and hope. And so God allows trials into our lives. And the problem is that people who don't understand this never act upon their hope. They never act as if they're saved. They, in fact, act as if they're not saved. So the application for this section is that after you've decided what God has called you to do, do it and do it well. Second section, last verses, where Paul talks about the greatness of God's love. Here's the problem. We've discovered today that God's wrath won't separate us from his love. God's holiness won't separate us from God's love. And our own circumstances won't separate us from God's love. And that's wonderful. But what is God's love like? I mean, it's great that we're not separated from it. But what if it's not a great love? And what, we need to discover a little bit about the extent to which God has loved us. And it's measured in the context of our sin. So the question at the end of this uh, text is, how great is God's love? And the answer is that it's so great that it's illogical. It's so great that it doesn't make sense. Now, James Montgomery Boyce, a favorite author of mine, pastor, calls what we're about to see here a redirected syllogism. Think of those words, a redirected syllogism. A syllogism, you may know, and if you're a mathematician, you'll understand this even more. A syllogism is something that takes two separate propositions that are both equal and also are equal to a third proposition. And so the theory is, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. You with me so far? That's a syllogism. But in the text we have today, and in an earlier text that Rachel read, we find a redirected syllogism. The text, just the brief part of what Rachel read, I'll, I'll read again right now. It's verses 16 through 20 of Psalm 66. Listen to this and see if you can hear the redirected syllogism. It's illogical. Rachel read, Come and hear, all of you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. Okay, he's going to talk about what God's done. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. 
He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. Now, how is that a redirected syllogism? Well, take a look at, well, first of all, an example of a syllogism using more of a spiritual side of things. Take the proposition that all human beings are mortal. And then understand that David Thies, that's me, is a human being, which means that David Thies is mortal, right? That's, that's the way it should read. But in this case, our first proposition is found in verse 18 of the psalm. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Okay? That's a statement. We understand that statement. We talked about God's anger. God can't tolerate sin. God is holy. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. That's the rule. That's the God we worship. Okay? Throughout the Bible, we see examples. Just look at the history of Israel and you'll hear God talking that way all the time. That's proposition one. Proposition two is in verse 19. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. That also is understood. God has listened. This is David probably writing this prayer. He's around, he's still here, so God has, God has listened. If God hadn't listened, David wouldn't be there. But he did listen. Now, if the syllogism is logical, here's what, here's what we say. If God is saying that if I cherished iniquity, I won't listen to you, and yet David is showing that he was listened to, what would you logically conclude about David? That he doesn't cherish iniquity, that David is perfect. And yet we know that David's not perfect, and he tells us that. He says, if I had cherished inequity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened, but truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. David at that point could say, hooray for me, I'm righteous. But he doesn't. He redirects it and he says, blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. Now this redirected syllogism, syllogistic approach to Psalm 66 can be used in our text today too. If we go into this next part, look what he says in Romans 6, uh, 5, 6 through 11. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, and here's the redirection of the, of the syllogism, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So he goes on and explains having been saved. Think of the benefits you're going to enjoy. But the illogical expression of God's love, or I'll change that, the expression of God's illogical love is that while we were sinners, he died for us. That doesn't make sense. So when you ask the question, what is this love that we're celebrating? How is it that God loves me? It's a, it's a love that is so illogical that it doesn't do what natural law says it should do. God can't stand sin. God can't stand iniquity. He turns his back on you and he turns his back on me. But he didn't do that. That's the point. That's how wonderful God's love is. The point is that God's trial that he faced was much worse than ours. 
He was dealing with our sin, and yet, against all logic and contrary to the natural consequence of sin, he reached down and he saved us. And so we get to get a feeling for how, it can, how we can be joyful in the midst of our tribulation. It's about perspective. It's the passage that Pastor Luke read last week. It's another Romans uh, two, 12, verse 2 moment. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. He's saying, change your perspective. Understand your relationship with God in the context of his love for you, not in the context of the circumstance that you face. Well, so why is it important to rejoice in my suffering? Why is it important to feel and live the peace of God, even as we understand him to hate sin, be holy, and apart from anything sinful? It's because if we wallow in the feelings of inadequacy and separation, we become ineffective in all that we do. Think hard about it. It gets pretty depressing if you stick with who you are. Except when you understand that God has saved you and has made it possible for you to live as a saved person. That's how God can be glorified no matter what we face. It's because of the message of the gospel living in us. Whatever circumstance is present in your life, it's there so that God will be glorified. Even physical death itself cannot take away from God the glory that he will receive in the life of a believer, for a believer will never see that death. So do you ever feel like God has abandoned you? Is it perhaps because you think that your life is not as perfect as you would like it, and therefore, in your view, God has let you down? But God hasn't let you down. He hasn't abandoned you. And the love that seems so illogical to us will never be taken away. Nothing will ever separate you from it. And in spite of all that you face, you can be all that God wants to be. You can feel God's peace. Praise God that in our weakness, he is so strong. Pray with me. Father, as we each are in places allowed by you, sometimes caused by our sin and our wrongdoing, sometimes not of our doing, but as we are there, would you meet us and would you assure us in these words and in the way you speak to us in our quiet time that you will not leave. And we praise you, Father, that you are a God who loves us so illogically that even when we don't deserve it, you pay the ultimate price. And as we understand that, would you make us the people that you call us to be? Give us opportunity and boldness and freedom from fear as we seek to do your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.